Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this moment. Thank you for what you are doing in Calvary Bible Church, how you're changing us, how you're raising up new leaders. Lord, we, we need them. We need men and women who, are, who have a history of godliness and a deep love for and knowledge of your word. I pray, Father, that you'd raise them up in our years of need in the future. And so, Father, we thank you and praise you for your provision in all of these things. And we give you thanks for it all in the name of our Savior, Jesus. Amen. So this morning, as we come together on this first Sunday after the launch of our second church plant, we are eager, I hope all of you are eager, to dive back into the Word of God. And so assuming that you are, why don't you turn with me to the book of Colossians chapter 3. Now, uh, we've been trying to limit our worship service to about an hour just because of the COVID issues. Uh, I can just tell you today, this is part three of this passage, and I'm determined to get it done. So it may go a little longer than, uh, than we have uh, planned to in the past. At this point in Paul's letter, he is taking us from the deep, rich theology that undergirds the Christian life to a place where he is eager to talk about the practicality of how God wants us to live as Christians, as followers of Christ. And by way of reminder, Paul's theme in this section of the letter is the expectation that the spiritual changes in the believer's heart that happen when a person comes to faith in Christ is going to lead them to a changed life. A changed heart always produces a changed life. If there's no change in your life, there's probably not been a change in your heart. A changed heart always produces change in one's attitudes and behaviors. Where there is life, there is growth. Where there is no growth, you can be sure there is no life. And the growth that Paul is concerned about in this passage is growth in, in a spirit-wrought virtues. And just as your salvation brought you into a new relationship with God, it has also brought you into a new relationship with sin. I've often said from this pulpit, I'm glad you say you have a new relationship with Christ, but do you have a new relationship with sin? And Paul will add to that here in this text, do you have a new relationship with virtue, sin and virtue? Now, it's important to note that while the fruit of the Spirit listed in Galatians chapter 5 is presented as the work of the Spirit, the work of God in our hearts, Paul's emphasis here is the believer's active participation in his own growth. We see this emphasis in a few different places in this letter. For example, Paul says in chapter 2, verse 6, Therefore, as you receive Christ Jesus the Lord, so what? Walk in him, live in him, behave in such a manner that you are in him. In other words, Paul is not only concerned about what you believe, he is also concerned about how you behave. Believers are called 
to behave in a manner that's consistent with the fact that they live in union with Christ. God thinks of you as one who is absolutely united with Christ. This is where we get the necessary righteousness for our salvation. The forgiveness, the redemption, all of it comes to us through union with Christ. And then in chapter 3, verse 5, Paul continues with this theme, the theme of active participation by commanding us very directly to put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. And he names some things. And so we have an active role to play in our sanctification. Regarding the impulses to sin in various ways, Paul says in chapter 3, verse 8, but now you must put them all away. You get the sense that what he means by that is, don't think that God is going to believe for you. Don't think that God is going to obey for you. God definitely has a major part in all of this. And we believe salvation is a monergistic act of God. Nevertheless, we are called to pursue it. And in this way, we put, we put them all away. In other words, we take them off like a filthy suit of clothing. Recently, I've been doing a lot of work in my backyard. And there are certain clothes I wear to work in the backyard, and when I'm done working, which these days only takes a couple of hours because it's so hot, and I get so dirty that I come into the house, and, and Chris is like, just, just get rid of those. Go take them to the laundry, take them all off, and, and, and dis dispose of them or put them in their proper place. And this is, what, this is what Paul is saying to us about our sin. Strip yourselves of these things. Put them all away. And then in chapter 3, verse 12, he says the opposite. Put on something else. Put on, then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. Here, here are the things that we are to put on. Compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. Then he points to the virtue that is most central to them all the most central of all of the virtues, is love. Love. This is what Paul is getting at in verse 14. The Christian life and the health of every local church, the core of it starts with love, which he says binds everything else together. In other words, he's wanting us to clothe ourselves with these virtues and so all of this clothing is tied up together in kind of a Middle Eastern kind of way with this belt called love. Beloved, these are Paul's inspired, authoritative instructions. When a man or woman surrenders his life to Jesus, God expects him to cultivate a new relationship with sin and a new relationship with virtue. In fact, Beyond the virtues that we have covered already, Paul has a few more for us to consider. In the verses before us this morning, Paul is going to talk about, he's going to exhort us to put on some more clothing, and that these involve a few things. Here, here we go. Peace, thankfulness, the ministry of the word of Christ, singing, 
and I want to call it a, a worldview that believes that everything we do should be for the glory of God. And that catches us up on the verses where we will be today, verses 15 through 17. So why don't we stand together in honor of God's word, and we're going to read this section together. This is Colossians chapter 3. Beginning with verse 15. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called, in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your heart to God. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to the Father through him. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading of his word, and you can be seated. Now, before we dive into these final virtues, I want to point out one more thing. Many times when Christians come to a New Testament list, like this one, we tend to kind of rush through it. We tend to kind of rush past it. We see it as something that maybe is less important. And I have known people like this through the years, and, and I have, I must confess, have done this. You get to the list and you just, look, we're not going to spend a lot of time on this, which is why we spend a lot of time on it here. And so you just rush through the list. Okay, be good, be good, be good. Don't kill anyone. Be good, be good, be good. We love the doctrine. We love the deep, rich truths. I mean, we start Colossians chapter 1, and our hearts say, Behold, here is Jesus, manifest, manifestation of the Creator God. There is none like Him. Here is the Father, irresistibly calling His elect into the kingdom of His beloved Son. Here is God the Son, wielding His sovereign authority over the angelic hosts. And wonder of wonders, here is the fullness of God in the body of a man. These are some of the deep, rich doctrines of Paul that come right out of the book of Colossians, this short letter. And we are greedy to devour them, like a starving beggar who suddenly finds for himself a vast store of food. But then we come to the list, and it's like, oh, bummer. Here's one of those old, stale lists of Paul. I think I'll skate right through that to something more spiritually rich, something more challenging, something, something that I'm going to have to study, something deep, something meaty, something stimulating, maybe something we can argue about. We tend to think of the items in biblical lists as so many dry wafers on the table, otherwise abounding with a rich spiritual banquet for the soul. I mean, skip the, skip the wafers, man. Give me the beef. Where's the beef? But it would be wrong for us to view it this way. 
I can tell you for certain that Paul never did. This is what he's been driving at from the beginning. Theology, the deepest, richest, and other theology that may, you may think is less deep and rich, all of it is moving us someplace. It's all trying to get us moving in a specific direction to bring about change in the heart. Where there is doctrine, there is always practice. In Paul's mind, the rich doctrines of grace flow from the deep heart of Christ as from a fountain of living water. But the river of truth that flows from the heart of Christ was never meant to be something we merely observe and marvel at and study and discuss. That's what Pharisees do. No, this Jesus whom we serve not only creates the life-giving river of truth, but bids us to leap headlong into its currents where our invisible faith turns into active, often risk-taking obedience from the heart. Every doctrine of the Bible calls for real change in how we live. Your formal theology should result in practical theology. And so, in addition to the original seven virtues, Paul adds five more. My, my challenge is to get it done today. So here we go, number one for today, actually number eight in the list, the virtue of peace. Now we're going to spend more time on this because I think we need more time on this first virtue. Paul writes in verse 15, look at it with me. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. Now it's important to note here that when Paul speaks of peace, he's not really thinking about a personal sense of peace. In contrast to anxiety, there are passages in the Bible that speak of peace as an antidote for anxiety, but this isn't one of them. Rather, he's speaking about peace between believers who perhaps disagree on secondary or tertiary issues. We know he's speaking about relational peace because of the next words in the verse. He says, to which you were called into one body. Now, you just need to know that with rare exception, whenever Paul refers to one body in his letters, the point he is making has to do with unity between believers in the local church. And that's the case here. Paul calls it the peace of Christ. The peace of Christ, which means the peace that Christ gives to his church. Paul speaks of the kind of peace that Ephesians 2.14 speaks of. Same author. In fact, he wrote it probably from the same jail cell. In Ephesians 2.14, this is where he's teaching about how the church is made up of both Jews and Gentiles. Just a hermeneutical hint here. Uh, they are historically enemies. And now they're in the same church. What do they need? They need peace. They need peace between these otherwise warring factions. And so, Paul reminds them 
with these words. For he himself, that is Christ, is our peace, who has made both groups one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. He tore it down. If you are a member of Christ's church, it doesn't matter what your ethnicity is. It doesn't matter what your cultural background is. It doesn't matter whether you're a Jew or a Gentile, whether you're black or white or something else. We are one in, in Christ. Beloved, this is why I say what the world needs right now mostly is the gospel. Only the gospel will bring the peace that our leaders say they are searching for. But you can't have it without Christ. That wall that divides us will not come down apart from the power of Christ. And so you see, beloved, there, there should be no disunity creating hostility in the church body. Not over ethnicity, not over, over cultural differences, not over music preferences or opinions about masks or any other tertiary matter because Jesus' death on the cross has broken down the wall of hostility between us. Now we no longer live for what? Ourselves. We no longer live for ourselves. We live for Christ, and we live for our brothers and sisters in Christ. We don't make our preferences the standard. We don't make our preferences the measure. We lay it all aside. Now, it makes sense that Paul would mention this kind of peace here in the list because, starting in verse 12, notice what he's already mentioned kind of gives you a hint at maybe what was going on. He's already mentioned things like humility. Why did he pick humility? By the way, that's a fruit of the Spirit, but it's not listed in Galatians chapter 5. There are probably a bunch of fruits of the Spirit that aren't listed in Galatians chapter 5, but it's listed here. Why did he pick humility and meekness and patience and forgiveness. Apparently, there was some kind of attention in the church that Paul doesn't specifically name. And, and there are a number of times when Paul seems like he's about to get really, really specific, and then he doesn't tell us what, what the deal was. Like when he prayed three times that the Lord would remove his thorn in the flesh. Everybody argues about what the thorn in the flesh was. Some people say it was, he was bald. Uh, really? Others say he had a physical illness or, or something, a, a, a demon bothering him. Paul's, Paul doesn't tell us here what the conflict was. And that means, as in other passages, we can insert whatever conflict we're having. Or in the other passage, whatever, whatever trouble we're facing, whatever pain, whatever discomfort, whatever hindrance, and Paul has a remedy for this. He has a remedy for the disunity, namely the peace of Christ. 
And so he says, let the peace of Christ, what's the next word? Rule. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. Now, this is really interesting because in the original language, the word rule is the exact same word that is translated in classical Greek, umpire. An umpire. As in our day, whenever there was a competition in his day, an umpire would be designated to make, to make sure the contestants followed the rules. He had the right and the privilege to disqualify anyone who broke the rules, and he had the privilege of naming the victor. And Paul is saying, that's what the peace of Christ should be like. Now that doesn't sound very intuitive. Okay, so here's what he's saying. Paul's saying that when there's a conflict between members of the church, let the peace of Christ, that is the unity that was purchased by Christ to be the arbiter between you and the other person. That means you have to say to your soul, how valuable is this compared to the peace of Christ? And if the peace of Christ were here right now personified like an empire, would I be disqualified from the game? He's asking us to do a hard thing, and that is to elevate the peace of Christ, the peace that God gives the church over our own desires, our own opinions our own convictions on some things. Let the peace of Christ be the arbiter. Let the divine command to preserve the, the peace rule like an umpire in the dispute. Do not let your passions rule you. Do not let your preferences rule you in the church. Don't let your emotions rule you. Discipline yourself. To let the peace of Christ rule your heart. Let the command to pursue peace rule your heart. I always go back to when I, when I think of issues like this. You know, we're talking about letting the peace of Jesus rule our hearts, the call to peace, let it prompt you to exercise humility and meekness and patience and forbearance and all those other things he's already mentioned. It always prompts me also to remember the stunning words of the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 6, 7, where he says this. You ready? Why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be defrauded and be okay with that? Why do you have to win at the detriment of the unity of the body? Why do you have to prevail over your brother? Why not let it go? For the sake of Christ. Why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be defrauded? God's way of valuing things, peace in the church is more valuable than most of what we believe is valuable. 
And someone will say, Pastor, are you advocating peace at all, cro- at all costs? No. I'm ad- advocating peace at significant cost. And sometimes Jesus wants us to die on the hill of sound doctrine. But not usually. Sometimes Jesus wants us to die to our precious desires and opinions for the sake of the church. To be sure, there are some issues worthy of dying for. There are few convictions worth breaking fellowship over, but they are very few. They're very few, and I would suggest to you they're named in the Bible. You don't get there by connecting this thought with that thought to another thought, to another blog, to another article. You get it from the Bible. Most of the time, Christians end up dividing over things that are hardly amount to a half a pound of, of used coffee beans. In a lot of eternity, they're really not that important. When you get to heaven, will you be more glad that you won the argument, or will you be more glad that you preserved the peace in the local church, in the body of Christ? Beloved, I I just think these are the things we need to be wrestling with during the COVID crisis. Not... What is my opinion and how can I get others to agree with me? But, Lord, what do, you, what do you want me to give up? The Lord places a high priority in unity in the body of Christ. In fact, he says, watch this, to this, Paul says, we were called. We were called to what? We were called to peace in the body of Christ. To this you were called. You say, I thought I was called to salvation. Yes, you were called to salvation. That's the whole point of this. That the doctrine is moving you somewhere. And here it is moving you to peace. We were called to this. So be willing to sacrifice your precious opinions and preferences for the sake of Christ. And the way Paul says it is, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts to which you were called in one body. This is the virtue of peace. Now let's move on. This, the next one today, the virtue of thankfulness. One of the ways in which we can become dissatisfied and disenchanted with life is by focusing on the things we want but don't have and the things that we have that we don't want. James talks about this in the fourth Uh, chapter of his short epistle, but we don't have time to go there this morning. We've talked about that before. The point is that when you want something so bad, you're willing to sin to get it. Or when you want something so bad that you're, you're, you're willing to set aside the person that is preventing you from getting it or sin against the person who is preventing you from getting it, then that desire, no matter how good, even if it's biblical, 
That biblical desire has just become a sinful desire to you. It's become an idol upon which you are willing to sacrifice things that God calls precious. One of the remedies for this spiritual malady is to cultivate thankfulness. And so, in addition to letting the peace of Christ rule your hearts, we're to practice thankfulness. When we get Christ, we get a new relationship with thankfulness. We should become thankful people. We know from Romans chapter 1 that one of the marks of an unbeliever is that they don't give thanks. And all through Scripture, and it's especially here in Colossians as we're about to see, thankfulness God values very, very highly. Are you a thankful person? You know, it's real easy during the pandemic to, to get um, dissatisfied with life. And certainly we all struggle with that because our freedoms have been restricted. But when we get Christ, we get the possibility of contentment in whatever situation. And by the way, do you remember the context from which Paul is writing this letter? He's in jail, and he's not in a jail like we think of jail. He's probably in a pit in the ground. They hoist him back out when it's time for him to meet someone or talk with someone. And so we are called to give thanks, to be thankful. In chapter 1, verse 12, we are told to give thanks to the Father. In chapter 2, verse 7, Paul says that Christians should abound in thankfulness. In chapter 3, verse 7, Paul exhorts us that in everything that we should give thanks to the Father. Four times in this short letter, Paul highlights the need for believers to be clothed in thankfulness. Now, what should we be thankful for? Everything. Everything. In chapter 1, Paul encouraged the Colossians to give thanks to the Father who qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. In other words, be thankful for your salvation. And there are many other things to be thankful for. For the forgiveness of your sins, for salvation, for God's goodness, for answered prayer, for people in the church, for your children, for your spouse, for your job, for God's provision, for your suffering, for your need. And because of our privileged position as sons and daughters of God, the Bible calls us to be thankful, listen carefully, in everything and for everything. Is God sovereign over your pain? Is God sovereign over that relationship that you lost, that job that you lost? No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. If he has removed your job from you, you need to ask yourself, what good thing is God giving me right now? What can I be thankful for? How can I be on the lookout for the blessing in this? How can I be careful not to miss the benefit of this trial? Beloved, we're 
talking about the Christian uniform. And Paul expects our lives to be clothed with these virtues. Is your life marked by discontent and dissatisfaction? Then perhaps it's time to take the leap off the bank of the river of God's truth and plunge yourself into, re into the refreshing, restorative, transformational currents of obedience. It's time to get off the bank and dive in. Beginning today, resolve by God's grace to cultivate a heart of thankfulness. And let me give you a practical suggestion here. One practical way to do this is to create what in biblical counseling we call a thankful journal. Every evening before you go to bed or in the morning when you wake up, take a little time. Use, just buy a cheap composition notebook and label a section of that, probably you know, 20 pages or more of it, and just put a heading at the top that says Thanksgiving. And then every day, date it and write something for which you are thankful. I've got stacks of these. And as I mentor counselors who are helping people, I'm amazed at how many of them use this as homework. Go home and begin listing, recording God's faithfulness things you're thankful for. It's amazing what it does to your heart. Now the next virtue that we are to put on is number three, the virtue of word ministry. In verse 16, Paul says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another with all wisdom. Now the first thing we should observe here in this verse, is that Paul refers to the Bible as the word of what? Is anyone awake out there? The word of Christ. The word of Christ. It's the only place in the Bible where a biblical author refers to God's word as the word of Christ. Elsewhere in the Bible, we read of the word of the Lord, the word of God, but only here the word of Christ. This is significant because it reminds us that throughout this epistle, Paul has one primary goal, and that is the exaltation of the supremacy of Christ. Christ in everything. Now, what does he say about the word of Christ? Well, Paul says that the word of Christ should dwell in you. The word of Christ should dwell in you. In other words, let it take up permanent residence in you. Let it not be like a distant relative who visits your house once or twice a year or even once or twice a week, but let it dwell in you. Give it a room. Give it a home. Let it be at home in you and you be at home with it. Make the word of God completely at home in your heart. The word of Christ should be on your lips. It should not live with it should not live within a in a in a beggarly way in your life where you never hardly ever think about it until you get to church on Sunday morning. You don't minister it to anyone unless you're asked to. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. And notice what we're to do with it. 
What are we to do with the word of Christ that dwells richly within us? Well, Paul says, you should employ it to admonish one another with all wisdom. Now, there are other places in the Bible that imply that we should be that we should regularly sit under the preaching of the word. And we have examples of that not only in the New Testament, but several examples in the Old Testament as well. But here, Paul has in mind the idea of every member ministry. He's not merely speaking about what I'm doing today. He's talking about every member ministry. Do you know the word of God well enough that you can offer wise counsel to someone who comes to you to ask for help? Here at Calvary Bible Church, we believe in the sufficiency of Scripture. We believe that every need of the inner person, the spirit, the soul, every issue of the heart is addressed sufficiently, sufficiently in the Scriptures, in the Word of God. And while it's true that certain men in the church are called to preach the word, all of us are called to minister the word. That's why so often I exhort you before you leave the building. Of course, we're all escorted out of the building now, so uh, we need to come up with new ways. You can do this around the playground or out on the patio. But I frequently exhort you, don't leave until you've engaged in conversation with someone. And let that conversation be something where you are seeking to bring God's word to bear, to encourage, to instruct, to exhort, to relieve, to teach, to admonish. And this is why our church is so committed to training people in biblical counseling. I don't know what you think about biblical counseling, but it's not what you see on TV. And one of these days, I, I, uh, and hopefully soon, uh, I want to take everyone who's interested into a room and, and show you what it looks like. I remember when I showed it to the elders the first time, they said, oh, that's biblical counseling? It's not what we thought. It's so much better. So much better. God has given us everything we need to deal with the issues of the heart as we respond to everyday problems in life. Sometimes just as you're you're experiencing the, the normal, common-to-man kind of temptations and issues. Sometimes the emotions get so tied up in them, you just need help. And it may be that the help you get is just reminding you of things that you already knew. But in order for that to happen, somebody needs to know the Word of God. You need to know the Word of God. The word for admonish here means to exhort to instruct. This, this is not reflective counseling. You know what reflective counseling is? Someone comes in and they say, hey, so I'm, I'm having trouble with my marriage. Oh, the counselor says, you're having trouble with your marriage. Yep, I'm having trouble with my marriage and it's my wife's fault. Also, you think it's your wife's fault. Hmm. Yep, it's my wife's fault and, and you're just reflecting it back as if somehow truth and the resolution of your problem is going to come out of your own heart. And from Paul's perspective, you're not going to find truth in your heart. You're going to find sin in your heart. You're going to find truth in God's Word. When you bring God's Word to bear, 
It's not like magic. It doesn't magically fix people. Some people come, and they think they want the Word of God, but when they hear it, and they're given some accountability, they, they don't want it. They take off running. But that's okay. We are called to exhort, to instruct, to advise, to counsel. This is what the word admonish means. It involves ministering to people in a way that helps orient their thinking, their desires, and their values back to the Word of God. And beloved, this is, this is something all of us should be equipped to do. Not just a select few who are known as the biblical counselors of the local church or the pastoral team of the local church or the wives of the pastoral team of the local church. No, no, no. It's for all of us. We should know the word of God so well that we can bring it to bear on one another's lives. And this is why I'm so excited also about the new men's ministry, the new E4M, equipping for ministry, because we're going to be, that, that training is going to begin in, in, in about a month although we're going to have a, an orientation tonight. We want to see our men, especially our men, to be trained in the Word of God well enough that they can minister the Word of God to one another regardless of the need. And the focus there is not going to be on counseling. The focus is simply going to be on learn the Word of God and help you apply the Word of God in, in sometimes risky ways. I, I am so excited about this. I'm probably almost as excited as Jason is about this. This is one of the most vital ministries of the church. Anytime we can help the men of the local body become more like Jesus and know his word better, we hold it at a high premium in this church. And that brings us to the next virtue that we should clothe ourselves with, the virtue of singing in, in his list of virtues, Paul includes singing psalms, hymns, spiritual songs. Now, I realize not everyone is gifted to sing. Uh, not everyone enjoys singing. Uh, not everyone is called to sing. Every, well, all believers are called to sing, or maybe not lead worship. And since we're all called to sing, I just think we ought to probably work on being able to carry a tune. But uh, we are, we are called to sing. Even if it's a joyful noise, we are called to sing. You know, Muslims don't sing when they meet. Catholics may have someone sing for them. In the Anglican church as well. But we sing from the heart. Why? Because this is where our theology moves us. It moves us to expressing a heart of gratefulness and joy and worship. It's not just about checking off the religious boxes. It's about expressing the joy of our hearts and the grief over our sin and the glory of our Savior. Psalms are songs that come right out of the Psalter, the Psalms. Hymns are songs that specifically offer praise to God. And spiritual songs are, are really nothing more than a kind of a taking of spiritual truth and setting it to music for believers to sing. It's not positive Christian music. It is biblical Christian music. It is music that draws our hearts to Christ. And notice that um, 
our singing should be the flow, the overflow of our hearts, thankfulness to God. There's that thankfulness again. And isn't it wonderful, as I said earlier, isn't it wonderful that we have the privilege now of worshiping without mass? And, and isn't it wonderful as well that we have such gifted people up here every Sunday morning helping us? Love that. This is the virtue of singing. And, and then, just in case he may have missed anything, Paul points to, number five, the virtue of glorifying God. He writes, And whatever you do, whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus. And this final phrase, giving thanks to God the Father through him. You see, beloved, every Christian man and woman and child should have a worldview that compels them to approach every activity, every decision in life from the perspective of whether or not and how it might glorify God. Every word, every deed, everything, every choice we make should be consistent with the name of the Lord. The name of the Lord. You know this, but in the Hebrew mind, the name of God speaks of his being, his character, his attributes. And so Paul is calling us to live in such a way that is consistent with the mind and heart of Christ. He wants us to live in such a way that proclaims the excellencies of Christ. If God loves it, if Christ loves it, we love it. If Christ hates it, we should hate it. And as we cultivate this virtue in our lives, notice how we're to do it. Namely, giving thanks to God through him. Giving thanks. Do you see how important thanksgiving is to God? And when we give thanks, and when we sing, and, and as we pray, and as we minister the word of God to one another, we offer it all through the only mediator between God and man, namely the man, Christ Jesus. Now let me close today by offering a clarification that I want to be sure to do here at the end. If you don't know the Lord Jesus, if you are not yet a follower of Jesus Christ, if you haven't had all your sins forgiven by him, these virtues are not for you. The virtues, all of these virtues and more, are fruit. And we need to make a distinction between fruit and root. If you don't need Christ, you don't need to work on your behavior. You need to bow before him. And come to Christ saying, Lord, I'm poor in spirit. I'm bankrupt in heart. I have nothing to offer you but my sin. Will you forgive me? Will you cleanse me? Will you make me whole? Will you change me? Do with my life whatever you want to do. I surrender. That's what God calls you to do today. Repent and believe. And so this morning, if you're sensing a need to be reconciled to God in Christ, I invite you to come to him. I'm not asking you to walk down an aisle. 
I'm not asking you to pray a, a written prayer. I'm asking you to pour out your heart to God wherever you are and plead with him to accept you on the merits of Christ and on the death of Christ, the resurrection of Christ, and on him alone. And so, beloved, this is how we should clothe ourselves. Put on, then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. If one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so also you must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell richly within you, teaching and admonishing one another with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, with thankfulness to God in your hearts. And whatever you do in word and deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Let's pray. Lord, we know that only you could give us a desire for these things, and certainly only you could make these virtues flourish in us in a way that when people see our lives, the way we speak, the way we treat others, they will see your glory and desire to know our Savior. So help us, Father, not only to live this way, but also to open our mouths and speak the truth of the gospel at every opportunity. Give us boldness, give us humility. May our, our primary motive for living be simply that Jesus Christ would be praised. These things we ask in the name of our Savior Jesus. Amen.